Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Um, we are going to return to where we left off last week as we continue through the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, it's okay. We do have paperback Bibles, and they are underneath the chairs in front of you. Passage is on page 493 of the paperback Bibles. We're looking at Mark 10, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. It was Herbert Hoover, the 31st president of the United States, who has been quoted as saying that the most valuable resource that we have as a nation is our children. And it's an easy fact to kind of overlook or to forget, but uh, it might be helpful to be reminded that the, the leaders of tomorrow, those who are going to lead the nations of the world, those who will lead companies, those who will lead the church, the leaders of tomorrow are the children of today. Uh, there's kind of a troubling passage back in Joshua, maybe you remember in chapter 2 where Joshua and his generation, after all that they accomplished for God's kingdom, they all passed away. And then in chapter 2, it says that there arose another generation who did not know the Lord. And what a tragedy it is when our children grow up and don't know the Lord because they haven't been taught the gospel and brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's probably why D.L. Moody, a very famous evangelist years ago, said, if I could relive my entire life, I would devote my entire ministry to just reaching children. So that's what we're considering this morning, Jesus and children. And uh, wow, what a great act of God's providence that this sermon happens to fall on the same day we just had an infant baptism. We actually didn't plan that. I wish I could claim credit for that, but uh, the Lord just worked it out that we're looking at this passage about children uh, on this uh, same day. But one thing we're going to see here very clearly is that Jesus loves children. And we're going to learn here about how much children should be valued, but we're also going to find out today what we as adults can learn from children. Do you know that children have a lot to teach us? That you can learn from children. And so, let's take a look at this, and uh, again, my slides are not advancing, so uh, thank you, Dan. Jesus and children, if you're able to stand, please do so. Short passage here this morning. Mark 10, just 13 to 16. And they were bringing children to Him, that is to Jesus, that He might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, He was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to Me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Holy Spirit, would you please come and give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, and let us behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> 
Okay, so um, let's unpack this short passage. First thing I want to show you, actually it's just uh, two points today, uh, but each of them is a little longer, but just two, just two points. First one is this, uh, that Jesus commands adults to bring children to Him. So, let's take a look at the passage, verse 13. We see here that they, you know, who was they? We're not really told. Probably parents bringing children to Jesus. They're anxious for their children to receive some blessing from Jesus. We see it very often during Christmas time where Santa is there in the mall and you see long lines of parents with their children hoping to get some special blessing from Santa. I don't mean to compare Jesus to Santa, but just to get this picture in mind of this line of parents looking for a blessing for their children, and they're bringing their children to Jesus. And the response from the disciples is yet another example where we're disappointed by the disciples. It just seems like one incident after another is kind of embarrassing for the disciples' sake. And so, the disciples, seeing these parents bringing their children to Jesus, they rebuke them. Now, that word for rebuke is actually really strong. It's a word that's used in other places for casting out spirits, evil spirits. So, these disciples see these children, and they're like, go away. Uh, Leave the Master alone. Don't bother Him. Don't bring these trivial matters to him. Now, their motives were probably pretty good, actually. The disciples, knowing that Jesus was a very busy man, uh, was in demand quite often, had uh, much to do. It was hard for him just to find a break and time to uh, rest. Um, and so, the disciples probably trying to protect uh, Jesus. But one thing to remember, and I brought this up before, is that there was an extremely low view of children in this day and age and in this particular culture. And that might be kind of hard for us to understand because we, we tend to love babies and infants, and we see like little Sophia, and we just fall in love, and they're adorable, and um, there's a very high view of children in our culture, but that wasn't the case in, in this culture. Families were actually very small. There was a lot of concern about overpopulation, even then, 2,000 years ago. And it's just heartbreaking to learn that some families had children, they didn't want them, and they would just take them out and leave them in some desolate place to die. It was just a common thing. You have a child, it gets in the way, you get rid of it. There was this idea, children are these lowly people that don't deserve attention. And so, it seems here like the disciples are probably taking in some of that. They're influenced by that cultural assumption, and so they're thinking Jesus certainly won't have time for children. We need to make sure that Jesus has time for the important people. And yet what we learn from Jesus is that to Him, children are the important people. Jesus' door, so to speak, is always open for children. And so, Here's his response, verse 14. It says, when he saw this, when he saw the disciples rebuking these people, he was indignant. That word indignant, it's made of a combination of two words, much and grieved. He was much grieved. He was angry. This is the only time in the Gospels this particular word is used to describe Jesus. You know the story of the money changers, Jesus going into the temple and overturning the tables. 
And we conclude from that he was probably angry, he probably was. The word indignant, though, was not used in that case. It's only used here when he sees his disciples rebuking these parents for bringing their children. And so Jesus goes on and he issues this command. He says in verse 14, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Look at that phrase, to such belongs the kingdom of God. The kingdom belongs to to such as these children, and so Jesus seemed to be saying that the kingdom belongs to people who are are like children in one sense, but, but, but He's not like excluding children from that. It's not merely a comparison. It's Jesus is saying that the kingdom belongs to children and those who are like children. It's like if you were a boss at work and you said to somebody, we need more workers like you, you don't mean by that we need other workers, not you, but workers who are like you, but, but not actually you. <laughs> you wouldn't say that. That makes no sense. That's silly. Jesus is saying the kingdom belongs to such, to children, those like children, but also to, to children. The kingdom belongs to children. So, what, what does he mean by that? Because, of course, we know, and we hear about it a lot here in the church, about the sinfulness of all human beings. I mean, is this saying that children are somehow innocent? Well, just ask any parent uh, that question, and you'll get a very quick answer. <laughs> uh, n- no, no, it can't mean that children are innocent. And in fact, if we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, that's the way you were. You were by nature, by nature. In other words, this is the the way you were born into this world as children of wrath, not children of the kingdom. You weren't born in a state of neutrality or in a state of moral goodness that earned God's favor. No, there's We're born into this world sinful, meaning that conversion to Jesus is needed, but nonetheless, Jesus is saying, to these kingdom belongs the kingdom. To these children belong the kingdom. So, what is he saying? Well, I I think at least part of what is in, in mind here is that although children are sinners, there is something very unique about children, and that is that they tend to be more sensitive and more receptive to spiritual things than adults tend to be. They're just more impressionable. They're more spiritually curious. They're more, they're more filled with, with wonder. I mean, there's a story maybe you've heard. I've used it as an illustration before, but this guy named Joshua Bell is this famous violinist, and he was in the subway, I think, in New York City, and he, he was just out there playing his violin, but nobody knew who he was. And he just wanted to see if a professional violinist with like the most expensive violin in the world were to just play out on the street when anybody notice. And so he's out there playing, and all the adults are passing by, but it's the children who are stopping. And they're like, there's something special going on. <laughs> that, that, you know, children are just, that they're drawn to magical, wonderful things more typically than adults. So Charles Spurgeon said this, the great... Baptist preacher in the 1800s. He says, I have more confidence in the spiritual life of children than I have in the spiritual condition of adults. I will go even further and say that I have usually found a clearer knowledge of the gospel and a warmer love to Christ in the child converts than in the adult converts. I will astonish you still more by saying 
that I have sometimes met with a deeper spiritual experience in children of 10 or 12 than I have in certain persons of 50 or 60. One of the common kind of phrases that are, is used in the church is this kind of idea of, a, of an age of accountability, this idea that a child needs to reach a certain age, and sometimes we fix it arbitrarily at 12 or 13 or maybe 15. Kind of the idea is that when they get to this certain uh, intellectual level, then we can be confident that they can really get spiritual things. But that just does not seem to be what the New Testament is teaching or what this passage is teaching. If there is an age of accountability, it's really, really young. And we can find other passages that would confirm this. If you look at uh, Psalm 22, here's King David praying to God, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast when he was still nursing. That's a young, that's a young child. And that's when David started trusting God, according to this passage. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. I mean, what does that say about age of accountability? Had David reached it yet? And if not, how was it said that he trusted God? How about um, Ephesians 6, 1, a very simple command, children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's not just a mere command, children, this is the right thing to do and everybody does it, obey your parents. It's obey your parents in the Lord. There's like an assumption that when you obey your parents, children, you're obeying Jesus because you have a, a relationship there, a responsibility to Jesus. Obey your parents in the Lord. We might even ask, as we look at this passage in Mark 10, how old are the children who are being brought to Jesus? We um, <clears throat> can't tell necessarily from this passage, but in Luke, where he gives his description of the same incident, Luke 18, 15, Luke includes that some of these children were infants. They were bringing infants to Jesus, which makes sense. If you look at verse 16, it says, Jesus took them in his arms can't imagine Jesus taking a 12-year-old kid up into his arms, into his lap. <laughs> Probably not. These are children small enough for, for Jesus to take into his arms. I think we just greatly sometimes underestimate the ability of children to get the gospel. There was a very interesting experiment that was done years ago by an Oxford psychologist. And she presented man-made objects to children and then <clears throat> asked the children where they came from. And she chose to do it in different countries. And one of the countries where she did this was in Japan because in Japan she knew that there was not, um, you know, the, the assumption, it wasn't taught in that culture that, that God is creator. So what happens if you have children who come in a culture where they don't even hear about God? What are they going to say when you present something to them, a man-made object, and say, where did it come from? So, they, so she did that, and she presented it to these kids, and more often than not, the kids said, God made it. <laughs> God made it. There's just this, this instinctive knowledge in, in children, and so that has to have something to do, I think, with what Jesus is saying here. Let these children come to me. Don't hinder them. Don't discourage them. Don't, don't give them the impression that they're not old enough to get these things. Don't discourage this. So, this um, passage, you know, it does not mention baptism. That, that's true. I totally grant you that. The word baptism is not mentioned here. It's 
Not a command to baptize our children, but I will say that in the early church, the language in this passage was frequently used in baptismal liturgies. So when children were baptized, and there's much evidence of infants being baptized in the early church, this text was referred to. In uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, 166, where we are directed in our own um, confession to have infants be baptized, this particular incident is cited as supported that. So, doesn't seal the deal. I'm not going to go into a long and extended argument for infant baptism here, but I will suggest that this passage helps, should help, can help in your understanding of why we apply the covenant sign to children. So, you, you just saw it happen. Uh, you just saw a baptism of little Sophia Lowry. So, um, as Pastor Brian said, we, we don't believe that that automatically gets Sophia in, into heaven, but God is pursuing her. God has set His heart on her. Uh, David and Sarah uh, are not hindering Sophia from coming to Jesus. They're bringing her for baptism. So the next step will be that um, she will be taught the gospel, she will be called to faith and repentance, and when the Holy Spirit works, when that happens, we, we don't know, but um, we're confident that, that that will happen. We're hopeful, we're confident. I don't have certainty, I don't want to say that, but we're very confident that the Lord is going to bless this family and Sophia is going to be a believer. I am highly confident that that's going to happen because this is how God tends to work. His grace flows down through generational lines. It's just the way, the way He does it. And when Sophia gets to a place where she can articulate her belief in Jesus, we'll, we'll have her come up here, and she'll tell you that. And she'll affirm her belief in Jesus, and at that point, we will welcome her to the Lord's table, and she'll begin taking the bread and the cup. So, we do hold back the Lord's Supper from children until they have a certain understanding. That's true, but we don't hold back the sign of baptism until they have an understanding, um, partially because of what we're learning here in this passage. A question that you need to ask, and let me say this too, that if you disagree with this, and we understand that there are, there's disagreement about that, and, and there are people in our congregation here who don't agree with this, we respect that, and it's fine. You don't have to baptize your children if it's against your convictions. We don't want you to violate your conscience. So you don't have to do that, and you're still welcome here at New Life. So let me make that clear. But I do think a good question for us all to ask is, what place do children have in our community? Are they insiders or outsiders? Do they belong to God or do they belong to the devil? Are they one of us or are they children of the world? Are they like little pagans? Do we just assume they're little atheists? Or do we assume better of them because of what God is, is doing and has been doing already in their lives by placing them in Christian families? I think Brandon mentioned this in his prayer, and it's, it's a good point. I think sometimes we are um, we're tempted to want to always look for the dramatic conversion story, you know, the person who had a life of drugs and alcohol and was near death and just lived this horrible life, and then Jesus saved them and their lives were entirely transformed and changed. And certainly that happens, and we rejoice in that, and that is a good thing. But I want to suggest that what is better 
well, at least as good, if not better, is when you have a child who grows up and you ask him or her in their 20s when they became a Christian and they said, I don't really know because I have always known Jesus. I don't know a day when I didn't know Jesus. I mean, my parents read me the Bible. My parents prayed for me. I went to church. That's the only thing I know in my experience is my need for the gospel, my belief in Jesus. That's the norm. The Damascus, Damascus Road experience of conversion, that, that's more abnormal. We rejoice in it, but what we look for are children being brought up in the home, nurtured in the admonition of the faith. So, parents, let me just say, you know, it, th this is uh, a responsibility that all parents have to, to nurture your children in the faith, to, to pray with them, to pray for them, to talk about the gospel, to call them to faith. It's a clear command in um, Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. See that Joshua passage I mentioned earlier, a whole generation that was raised up and didn't know the Lord, I think we can only assume that their parents didn't do this, didn't teach them the gospel. And so they wandered away. We have a, a ministry here at New Life called Pray for Our Youth. And we have this arranged for adults to be assigned to children in the church to pray for these children on a regular basis. And it's one of the ways we take seriously this call to nurture our children, not just as biological families, but as a spiritual family as well. And we have a resource for you. Maybe some of you parents are, are hearing me say this and you're thinking, I don't even know where to begin. Well, we have a, a, a list that kind of gives some direction on how to guide your children in Scripture memorization and in using the catechism. The catechism are just like question and answers about theological matters, pretty simple, shorter catechism to help you catechize, teach your, your child. I mean, sometimes I hear parents say, well, I'm not going to say anything to my children about what to believe. I want them to get to an age where they can just make a decision for themselves. I just want it to be independent. I want, I want it to be their decision. I'm not going to influence that. That is just totally irresponsible. Parents, brainwash your children with the gospel. Beat it into their heads. I mean, be gentle, be kind about it, but <laughs> teach your children because the world is going to teach them things that you don't agree with. And they're going to be in the world more than they're going to be with you at some point. So teach, teach your children. There's a promise, or a, I don't know if I want to call it a promise from Proverbs, but train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. There, there's, there's a promise to parents who train up their, their children. Now, I, I know that one response to this, though, might be, well, yeah, but what about me? I, I trained my children, um, and they did depart from it. I mean, I, I did the best I could as a parent to set an example and to teach the gospel, and, and, and they've rejected it. And so I know for a lot of parents, that, that just causes a lot of heartache, a lot of guilt, a lot of regret. If only I'd said this, if only I didn't say that. I'll just say a couple things just briefly. First of all, it's not your job to save your child. You're not the Messiah. 
Uh, you didn't lay down your life for your child. Jesus did. It's Jesus' job. You can't open the heart of, of a child, of, a, of anybody, to get the gospel. You can't break down a stony heart and turn it into flesh. You can't do that. The Holy Spirit does that. So don't hold yourself to a responsible or like an expectation that you're not meant to fulfill. It's Jesus' job to say, but I'll say this also, you know, to whatever extent that, that you taught the Scriptures or told your children about Jesus, I mean, don't underestimate the ability of the Holy Spirit to bring that back to the memory of your children in God's sovereign timing and to just remind them of what they had learned. It's happened so many times that children wander away and then something occurs to them and the Holy Spirit opens their eyes and their heart just warms toward gospel things and they come back. I'm not guaranteeing you that's going to happen, but I'm telling you, it happens a lot. And whatever even minimal effort you put forth, God can use it to bring back to their memory the goodness of the gospel and save them. I always just think of my mom. I've mentioned this before, but she's at Westminster Village and she's got dementia and she can't remember what she had for lunch. But she remembers Scripture, the Scripture that she was taught as a child. She knows those things. She hasn't forgotten them. And God can use your efforts, however inconsistent or incomplete they were, He can use those to bring back to your children the knowledge of the gospel so that they return to the faith. Pray for them. Don't give up. Don't give up. Second thing that I want to show you, first of all, Jesus commands adults to bring children to Him. The second thing, though, is Jesus commends children as examples to adults. Jesus commends children as examples to adults. So, I made that point in verse 14, the kingdom belongs to such uh, that that would include the children, the kingdom belonging to them to some extent. But in verse 15, it is a little bit different because in verse 15, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child. So n- now I think Jesus is saying that I'm using children here as an example about how to receive the kingdom. Like a child. You need to, to, to receive the kingdom. Uh, in, in order to enter the kingdom, you need to receive the kingdom like a child. But, but, so let's just pause here for a moment. Like, what does that mean to like enter the kingdom? What does that mean? Well, to enter a kingdom is to come under the rule of a king. Pretty simple. And I think the king that the Scriptures are telling us about is King Jesus. And so if you look at verse 14, notice when Jesus says, let the children come to me, to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom. The implication is you come to me, you get the kingdom. It's like Jesus is thinking of himself and the kingdom as synonymous, as one and the same. So I think we can safely conclude that to enter the kingdom is to come into personal relationship with Jesus, placing faith in him. And so I'm going to say from this text, two things to enter the kingdom. One, there there is an action. So again, verse 15, notice that word receive, whoever does not receive the kingdom. You have to receive the kingdom. Even though everything I said in my first point is true, that the kingdom belongs to the children, nonetheless, you you have to believe. You have to put your faith in Jesus. You have to trust in what He's done for you. John 1 says this, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So don't misunderstand 
point one of this sermon as if, well, if I'm born into a Christian family, I'm good to go. No, you have to receive the kingdom. There's an action required, but there's also an attitude. And that attitude is like a child. Receive the kingdom like a child. Here's something very interesting, is that very often when we think of children being converted, we expect children to be more like adults. But what Jesus is saying is that in order to be converted, an adult needs to be more like a child. It's the exact opposite. Think about children, you've got to grow up and be a certain kind of intellectual level, and then you can be a Christian. The Bible never says that. The Bible says if you adult, you want to be a Christian, you've got to be like a child. You've got to be like a little, tiny child. Well, what does that mean? Like a child. What, what, what does that mean? And I think the answer is, is this. To be like a child is to admit your total and complete helplessness. That, that's, that's the way ch- children were. Remember again what I said earlier about the way children were regarded in this day and age. Very low view of children. If you read modern views of children into this statement, you might think, oh, I've got to be cute to get into the kingdom of heaven. You know, I've got to be adorable to get into the kingdom of heaven. You know, that's taking our culture and reading this into this. Go back to that culture. It's like, no, the children, children had nothing to offer. They had no influence. They had no power. They had no reputation. There was nothing they had accomplished. They had no wealth. They had no wisdom. They had no sophistication. They had no moral resume. They had nothing to present to God as a reason why they should receive the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be a Christian and enter the kingdom, you got to come to me like that. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's the way you become a Christian. I think a lot of people, they kind of say, well, I'd like to be a Christian maybe, but I'm going to, I got to get my house in order first. I got to fix up my life first, and then I'll, I'll go become a Christian. I've got to fix up my life. And Jesus would say to you, I don't want your fixed up life. Not interested in it. What I want is your sin. Bring me your sin, and I'll cover it in my blood. Bring me your foolishness. I'll turn it into wisdom. Bring me your weakness. I'll make you strong. But don't bring to me your resume of moral accomplishments because I'm not interested. Enter the kingdom like a child. Just offer up your helplessness to Him. That's the prerequisite for being a Christian. I received an invitation uh, uh, recently to go to a a volunteer appreciation dinner for uh, a a group that that I'm wanting to volunteer at. And so I get this email, you can come to volunteer appreciation dinner. And I'm thinking, but I haven't done anything. And I hadn't yet volunteered. I haven't, (laughs) I hadn't contributed anything. It just felt really weird to me to go and sit down and have a dinner and have these people thank me when I haven't done anything. So I said, no, no, thank you. I I can't do that. I can't be appreciated. I can't be valued. I can't be accepted when I haven't done anything. And that's the exact way a lot of people think about the gospel. How could God accept me unless I do something? I've got to, I got to work so I can be appreciated. I've got to be able to bring something to the table so I can be thanked for something that I have done. But the whole point of the gospel is it's not up to you. 
It's up to Jesus. It's not what you have done. It's what He has done. It's not something you achieve. It's something you receive. Jesus has paid it all, and there's nothing for you to add. So, have you come to that realization? Have you been brought to that point where where you're going to repent of all of your self-reliance and all of your independence and say, I give it all up for Jesus alone? All I have is Christ. That's what that song means. I don't have my own accomplishments to come along with it. The only thing I have as a confidence to be received into the kingdom is Christ. So, lay down your burden as we're about to sing. And I think the song, it just sums up very well what we've heard. Lay down your burden. Lay down your shame. Can't read my writing. All who are broken, (laughs) lift up your face and come to Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for what you remind us of, things that are contrary to what we expect. Help us to be like children. Make us humble like children, that the kingdom of God may be ours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.